Onasu. So we're going to go directly into the next session. So please find a comfortable posture. Although Padmasambhava says adopt the seven-point posture, of course, if you're comfortable, that is optimal. But if you're not comfortable, then it's not optimal. In which case, please do find a comfortable position because the sense of ease, relaxation, comfort in body and mind is really crucial for this. If you're tight, you're strained, in pain, that's going to be a distraction. Okay? So in this session, I'll just kind of tiptoe into the next whole section of his teachings on identifying awareness. We won't cover much territory. We'll just kind of open the door and look in. Okay? Let the sound of the chime be a signal for releasing, not arousing or focusing or tightening up, but settling, first of all, your body in a state that is relaxed, still and vigilant. And then utterly releasing into the breath. So that you allow your body to breathe without intervention, without regulation. Whatever cares and concerns you have about your life, your future and your past, Set them aside. Let your mind at ease. And as you free all grasping onto thoughts pertaining to the past, present, or future, your awareness naturally comes to, to rest in its own stillness, in its own place, and naturally clear.
now as we begin, take the very first step to receive Padmasambhava's own pointing out instructions as he helps us identify the nature of our own awareness, our own being. Then let Padmasambhava's speech, Padmasambhava's words, his guidance, let that be your guru. Not anyone else. As if he's calling you from afar. From 1,200 years ago. From thousands of miles away. But a clear signal, a clear channel from his mind to your mind. From one perspective. But from another perspective, imagine that the mind that is the source of these teachings is utterly present here and now, as fresh, as vivid as ever, And let Padmasambhava be your guru. So we begin with his pointing out instructions. Have all your pupils sit in front of you in the posture bearing the seven attributes of Varochana. Now, Place your awareness right in the space in front of you, steadily, without modification, fixedly, without wavering, and clearly, without a meditative object.
while so doing, given the differences in intellect, in some a non-conceptual, unmediated, conceptually unstructured reality will arise in their mind streams. In some, there will be a steadiness or a stillness in awareness. In some, there will be a steady, natural luster of emptiness that is not an emptiness that is nothing. there will arise a realization that this is awareness itself. It is the nature of the mind. In some there will arise a sense of steady luminosity and in others a sense of straightforward emptiness. In some, appearances and the mind will merge. Appearances will not be left outside. 
and awareness will not be left inside. There will arise a sense that they have become inseparably equalized. That is appearances and the mind. It is impossible that some such kind of experience will fail to occur. In seeking to engage in this practice, qualms may arise, uncertainties, doubts. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? The very simple answer is when you're not doing it wrong. That's the authentic practice. So then we'll approach it by a process of elimination. If you're caught up in thoughts about the future and the past, your attention carried away, that's not the practice. If your attention is fixed on any object in the present, either sensory or mental, That's not the practice. If you're spacing out, your awareness becoming dull and the flow of cognizance fading out. That's not the practice. 
if you're hoping that something's going to happen, some breakthrough, but fearing that it won't, that's not the practice. if you are desiring to achieve something you have not achieved, or to become something that you are not already, that's not the practice. When you're not deviating in any of the preceding ways, but you're still uncertain, still doubting, am I doing it right? That's not the practice. you have a sense of doing the meditation, that's not the practice.
you have a sense of doing anything at all. That's not the practice. You're not deviating in any way away from the practice. What's left over, what remains, is the teaching of Padmasambhava. Rest there. That's your medicine. That's your medicine.
So you'll recall, I'm sure, Gantantur Rinpoche's comment, there's only one samaya for this practice. Do not look outside yourself for the Buddha. Do not look outside yourself for enlightenment. Which means do not look outside your own awareness for your own ultimate refuge. So very clear, very direct Dzogchen teachings, very much in the spirit of Dzogchen, the great perfection. But I love doing this to keep on weaving this into one dharma, not to think that Theravada or Shravakayana is way over there for some other kind of people, and then there's the Sutrayana, the common path over there, and then we have Vajrayana, and then we have Dzogchen over here, but rather see this as really all one dharma. So a very brief statement by the Buddha, just before he passed away into Panadamana. It's very often quoted, it's now very timely to quote, from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And the Buddha addressing his very close disciple, his attendant who had been with him for something like 25 years, I don't know exactly, but a long time, by his side, really by his side, like at all times. And so here's this famous statement by the Buddha. He said, Therefore, Ananda, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge, with the Dharma as your island, the Dharma as your refuge. Seek no other refuge. Elsewhere, if I remember correctly, in the, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha said, one who sees the Dharma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dharma. And the Buddha is the very embodiment of Dharma, right? The very embodiment of Dharma. That's what Dharmakaya means, embodiment of Dharma. See the, see the Dhamma, see the Buddha. See the Buddha, you see Dhammakaya. See Dhammakaya, you see your own awareness. That was simple. So that's quite extraordinary. Another statement from Dujum Lingba. It's very relevant here. It comes in his most quintessential full unveiling of or presentation of the entire path to achieving enlightenment in one lifetime called the, the Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra. It's extremely short. It's almost like super high compact disc, like in 10 pages, the entire, the entire path. But happily, he gave his own oral commentary to it which is then unpacks it to about 100 pages, and then you say, whoa, you can actually get it, you know. Um, and right towards the beginning, this, he lay, well, he lays out the entire path in eight phases. And the first phase is taking the mind as the path, you know, upon the basis of some degree of preliminaries, whatever is helpful. Uh, so he presents the taking the mind as the path, settling the mind in its natural state. Presents a technique, it's very simple, very straightforward. I think you all know it. He also lingers a little bit on a point enormously important, and that is the issue of upheavals. And that is when you do this, not for 20 minutes a day, 40 minutes a day, 
But when you start doing this rather seriously, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing 20 or 40 minutes a day. That's great. But if you start doing it for 8 or 12 hours a day, and you do that for week after week, month after month, then upheavals will occur. Unless you've just purified your mind so much, there's nothing to upheave. You know, and so he lingers there a bit. And that is when this stuff comes up, when you get these upsurges, these eruptions of the mind, whether when you're hearing somebody else speak, that can happen. Or whether you're, when you're sitting quietly in meditation, that can happen. Or you're simply out for a walk or engaging in any type of activity. We may have these upsurges of mental afflictions, nyam, distressing emotions, mental afflictions of all kinds. And he emphasizes, I'm just going to linger here very, very briefly, but he emphasizes, if you're going to stay on this path and not just get stuck, and take, take this path, take this train, this little train called taking the mind as a path, if you're going to take that little local train from where you are to its destination, the end, you know, all off, all off, we've arrived, you know, your mind has settled in its natural state, you've realized shamatha. If you're going to make it all the way, then you will have to know. This really, there is only one way. You will have to know. You must know, practically speaking, not only intellectually, what do you do when you encounter those upheavals? Whether you're seeing them appear objectively, whether you're seeing them appear in your mind, however they appear, and there is one simple response to that, and that is you really have to stop reifying them. If you don't learn how to not reify them, to see them as simply empty appearances, having no substance, no grab, no substantiality in and of themselves, if you can't do that, if the grasping continues, you will be stuck. doesn't mean forever, but you're going to have to find somebody to help you get unstuck, because that's what's sticking you. It's not how big the upheaval is, it's the grasping. The grasping. So there's that. So he presents that. He presents that very elegantly, profoundly, and clearly. and said, you must master this. You must have that insight. In other words, he's drawing from the Pashana to some extent and drawing this into the shamatha. Just as the more you've cultivated your shamatha, you're going to draw that relaxation, that stillness and clarity into your vipassana. Right? So then he comes to the end of this section, which is an enormously important section, which we, I think we're all aware of by now. If you, as Geshe said, he said, if, you've, if, you, if you achieve shamatha, then vipassana is easy. That's what he said. Chief Shamatha, Vipassana is easy. It's that first step that's a bit difficult. You know, the nine step. So, here's what Dujum Lingba says, and it's really, it's, so it's his commentary, his own oral commentary to the revelation or the visionary teachings that he perceived as he had this direct vision, another direct vision, very brief and concise, of the Lake Born Vajra, this manifestation of Padmasambhava. So here is his commentary. He says, so cut through your false assumptions. All our projections, preconceptions, all the stuff, all the baggage we're carrying with us, right? Cut through your false assumptions by inseparably devoting yourself to a sublime spiritual friend who knows how to teach the essential points of this path correctly. So a sublime spiritual friend who really knows the path and is willing to show you the path step by step, and knows what are the essential points, so you don't get caught in little detours and attractions along the way. Just takes you right, right straight down the path. Inseparably devote yourself to a sublime spiritual friend. 
Well, a lot of us wish we had such a sublime spiritual friend, or even if we have one, that we could actually inseparably devote ourselves to him. But sometimes you know, we hardly ever see them. Or I, I met somebody recently that said, I asked, who is your guru? And she says, well, I've never met him, but this is my guru. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it's kind of nice to be able to meet your guru, you know, all things considered. And so we don't all have that good fortune. So he says, so this is very helpful, he says. Even if you lack such good fortune, to be able to remain inseparably with sublime spiritual friend who's fully qualified to guide you on this path, it is indispensable that you, without falling into indolence, just sheer laziness, properly seek out and familiarize yourself with the practical instructions of the Vidyadharas of the past who have achieved cities by way of this path. So even if you don't have a person that you can have a very personal relationship with, you can remain inseparably with this person, receive guidance in an ongoing way, even if you don't have that good fortune. You're not without hope. You're not hopeless. You're not out of luck. But then you must gain access to practical instructions, authentic pith instructions, practical instructions that are coming from, that are emerging from the enlightened awareness of a vidyadara. And a vidyadara, again, just to remind you, is a person who has direct, unmediated, non-conceptual realization of rikpa, which means, of course, has realized emptiness and, of course, has achieved shamatha. This person in the sutrayana context has achieved the Mahayana path of seeing. Arya Bodhisattva, but Dzogchen Arya Bodhisattva, pretty formidable. Yeah. Well, it seems that such people are relatively rare nowadays, but not non-existent. So my own teacher, Gyatra Rinpoche, told me, young Tandra Rinpoche, has achieved shamatha, vipassana, and realization of Rikpa. So if any of you listening by podcast, any of you here, have any opportunity even to see him, young Tandra Rinpoche, Y-A-N-G, T-H-A-N-G, Rinpoche, uh, you'll be very fortunate if you just have a connection with him. Because that connection will be something that you can sustain from lifetime to lifetime. That will serve you very well. But even if you cannot follow such a person, receive guidance from such a person, a truly realized Vijayadana, then seek out, identify with confidence, and familiarize yourself, and that is saturate your mind in the practical instructions of the Vidyadharas of the past who have achieved cities. They've accomplished. They are realized. They know. They are Vidyadharas. They are holders of Vidya, holders of knowledge. They have gained the realization. They know who they are, who have achieved cities by way of this path. So, Padmasambhava was one. These are authentic teachings of Padmasambhava. These are practical instructions. So you're holding Padmasambhava in your hand when you hold natural liberation. Right? There he is. You bring Padmasambhava home with you. You don't even have to buy an extra seat in the airplane. You know, an extra ticket. Me and Padmasambhava, please. You know. Take him with you and you carry on. But put it above, not below your feet. So, 
Do you want to know, am I, am I a Vidyadhara? The answer is no. That was a pretty short conversation. Can you receive Padmasambhava's instructions, his teachings, the practical guidance through this, through this person? Yeah, why not? Why not? Where this person here is, you know, Alan Wallace, me. Where this person is, Padma, is Padmasambhava also here? Yeah. He's not someplace else, kind of like, you know, puttering about in his garden. <laughs> right? The nature of Padmasambhava. Call on Padmasambhava, Padmasambhava is there. That's his job. It's a wonderful thing. But I mentioned before, when you've realized Rikpa, let alone when you've realized perfect awakening, then from your perspective, from the perspective of Dharmakaya, transcending space and time, beyond the three times, you are absolutely free, but primordially free, but absolutely free. But relatively speaking, in terms of manifesting in this world, serving the needs of sentient beings when they call upon you, you have no freedom at all. Right? Relatively speaking, no freedom at all. That is, when you call Pung or Yuki Nu Chan Sang, you call on Padmasambhava. Come, come, I'm seeking your blessing, seeking your guidance. He has no choice. He can't say, oh, but I've been doing this for 1,200 years now. Really? No. Can't I have a break? He has no choice. No choice. It's spontaneous. You call, he's there. No choice at all. No freedom whatsoever. So happy. Helpless compassion. Rawa mepe Helpless compassion. You know, all pervasive. Helpless compassion. So if you want to receive Padmasambhava's instructions here and now from Padmasambhava, that's your choice. If you want to receive it from some California guy with a PhD, if that's all you wanted, you can have that. <laughs> professor Dr. Allen. No, I'm not even a professor. You know, I'm only Dr. Allen Wallace. If that's what you want, you can have that. You know? If that's all you want, you can have it from whoever you want. To linger there just a little bit, I've heard from earliest times, back in 71, 72, actually His Holiness told Geshe Ngao Taige. He was supervising Geshe Ngao Taige for the first time teaching Westerners in this regular, systematic way. It was the first time. You know. And so there we were in 1971, starting in fall, October 1st, 71. And his holiness told Geshe Ngam Taiki how she teach. Because he chose him, obviously. And so he's going to teach Islam Rim. That's your foundational, there's the path, you know. But he said, don't teach the Westerners. His holiness was only, what, 36 at the time. Had 1971, hadn't been to the West yet. Not even to Europe, not even once. So he was entirely in, for the last, what, 12 years, only in Asia. But he said, okay, yeah, we, we will both know, of course, that the Lamrim begins right up front with Guru Yoga. Right? You're, setting, you're setting the stance for receiving blessings that will power, empower you, bless you, enrich you, inspire you for the whole path. We all know that, that it starts with Guru Yoga. Don't start with Guru Yoga. Don't start with Guru Yoga. Not with these, not, not with these, not with these gringos. <laughs> you know? No way, Jose. Don't teach them Guru Yoga from the beginning. No way. That's not going to work out very well. That's what he said. He says, start with the Four Noble Truths. The first thing is start with the Four Noble Truths. 
And then you can proceed from that basis. Then you're okay, but skip Guru Yoga. Don't go there. Four Noble Truths, and then you can go to the precious human rebirth, to death and impermanence, and step by step up to the, all the phases of renunciation, then step by step the bodhicitta, step by step the five, six paramitas, all the way through perfection of wisdom. And then you can just go to yoga. When they have the big picture, and they really understand something about the nature of Buddha, about the nature of refuge, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and so forth, they see the nature of the path. Now, okay, and that was eight months later, he spent eight months laying out the path, six days a week. Then he said, okay, at the end you can teach Guru Yoga. So that would have been 72, like spring of 72. And I remember, I think it must have been then, my memory's a bit blurry because it's 43 years old, but um, either he or one of the earliest teachings said, you know, when you, when you look upon a, a great lama that everybody knows is a great lama, seems very different from ourselves. Like I was just speaking with, with somebody just a couple of days ago uh, who's not a Buddhist. But many years ago, early 70s, he went to Vancouver and didn't know much about Buddhism. But he went to the crown ceremony, the Black Hat Center, Black Crown Ceremony by the 16th Kamapa. And they just had rented a big hall. And there, this man, whoever he was, 16th Kamapa, you know, some Tibetan Lama, He's up there, and this guy's just watching. He's kind of clueless, like, what's going to be the crown ceremony? And he described it to me, what he, what he witnessed. And that is, they brought the crown, they lifted the crown above his head, and then he, saw, he said what he witnessed was just, he said the whole air filled like it was honey. Like it was just the whole auditorium, the whole space was filled with honey. And then white light emanated out from the kamapa and above his head. And it filled the whole space. And it just brought about a profound and beautific shift of awareness. And it lasted and lasted. And then eventually they put the black crown back in its casing. And he said, I never saw that coming. Because it wasn't a placebo effect, like, watch this and you're going to see something really cool. It was just, watch. And he was utterly dumbfounded. Just, what was that? It was sublime, but what was that? And then he spoke with other people who were pretty much, that was like, I don't, maybe 72, 73, I don't know exactly when, but a long time ago. He spoke with other people in the auditorium. and said, what did you see? And he said, they saw the same thing. What was that? So when you see something like that, when you see a being like that, Yawakamapa, displaying like that, you say, whoa. I mean, he didn't say this, but I think most of us would think, whoa, he's not like me. <laughs> he's really not like me. When they say maybe he's a Buddha, maybe he's a Buddha. You know? And so Namo, I take refuge in the Guru, because he's so not like me. When I first arrived in Patankot, 1971, making a beeline from, from, what was it, from Germany to Cairo to Bombay, flying, 
Bombay to Delhi, took the overnight train at the Patankot, this grubby little station, hill station. Then there was no bus that day, so I had to overnight there in this grubby, grubby little Tibetan hotel. <laughs> in a manner of speaking, very loose manner of speaking. And on the, on the walls there was a photo of the young Dalai Lama and then photos of his two tutors. At that time I thought the Dalai Lama was just a king, so I wasn't very interested. I don't need a king, I want a Lama. I want a real Lama. You know, not a Dalai Lama, I want a real Lama. But I looked at the, his, two senior tu- his, tutor, his two tutors, like Ling Rinpoche. I thought, of all the Lamas of Tibet, they chose him as senior tutor. He must be something. And then I looked over there, Kepchi Tijan Rinpoche. Oh, he looks like a sage. He is also chosen tutor of the Dalai Lama. He must be something. He must be really deep. If they chose these two to be the tutor, because he could have anybody he wants. So I thought, whoa. Kind of some real faith in the, in the two tutors. <laughs> Not the guy in the middle. He's, he's young. And I thought he was a king. you know. But part of that was, they're so unlike me. Boy, were they not like me. I was this grubby Western guy with a backpack and, you know, blue jeans. I didn't look like them at all. So Geshin Lamantaige or these other teachers, they all kind of merge into one in the very early days for my mind now. He said, you know, not so difficult when you see the Lama as being very someone very different than yourself, much, much higher. And you think, oh, you must be Buddha. You're, you're Guru. And it was very common in Tibet. The great lamas, the great lamas like the Sakyatinsa Rinpoche and the Dingo Kinsa Rinpoche and the Kalu Rinpoche and the Dalai Lama and so forth, sometimes these lamas would travel around the country and they'd come and the word would spread. You know, people would come from hundreds of miles. Okay, he's coming to Derge. This great lama's coming to Derge. He's coming to Gekundo. And people would come from all over the place, sometimes thousands of people for an empowerment or some deep tantric teachings or Dzogchen teachings, what have you. And uh, the great lama would come with big entourage, and by, by and large they'd wear brocade, and they'd come with the trumpets and the so much pomp and circumstance. You really, I mean, you, it would be hard not to look with awe at, whoa, this must be some incredible being, to have all that reverence, all that pomp and circumstance, all that devotion shown to him. And so, like that. I saw that when I first attended the Kalachakra initiation by His Holiness in Bodhgaya, 1973 or so. 100,000 people showed up. We had no toilets. No toilets for 100,000 people. None. Oh. Ladakhis and Bhutanese and people from all the Himalayan region. And, mm. <laughs> but there in the distance, because I just came over with the monks from my monastery. We just started and there, there it was. So I came over, you know, all traveling third class, Sick as a dog by the time I got there. Stayed sick as a dog the whole time. Or really, like, you know, like a Bodhgaya dog. That's a really sick dog. That's how I felt. You know. But there in the distance, you know, with all the throne and the mandala and the many monks and the ritual, I thought, whoa. By then I'd already made contact with him. He was my lama. I had reverence for him. He said, wow, he's really not like me. Look at the reverence of these people. 
just unbelievable reverence. 100,000 people gathered to receive this Kala Chakra environment. So insofar as we see the lamas being very, very different from ourselves, not so hard. The great lamas who give Kala Chakra empowerment, this empowerment, this transmission, or the Rinjin Dertsu give a whole bunch of empowerments all at once, right? And so on. But the, the word, the, 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 the wisdom of the tradition says, if you're living in someplace out in Kham, and the great lama comes, the Kamapa, the Dujum Rinpoche, what have you, come, gives empowerment, and then that lama's gone, and then you just have your local lama, maybe local Rinpoche, or maybe not even a Rinpoche, just the Kempo of your local monastery, Kempo's abbot, right? Or maybe just your teacher, like your uncle or something like that, who's teaching you, you know, how to read and basic bodhicharvatara and things like that, and maybe teaching the preliminary practices. The wisdom of the whole tradition says, if you have really deep reverence and real guru devotion for the big lama who came like a shooting star and then just moved right on, and then somewhat less for the local Rinpoche, he's good, but he's not that good. And then the abbot of your local monastery, well, he's, he's, he's a nice guy. And then you have your own teacher who's just giving you daily teachings. And well, yeah, he's, he's good. But he's kind of like me. I mean, I'll be like that in a few years. He's, 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 he's ordinary. Because he's teaching me every day. You know, he blows his nose. He yawns. I heard him fart once. You know, he's just like me. Well, he's ordinary, but the one that came three years ago and stayed for two days, oh, mind-blowing. Then you missed the whole point. You missed the whole point. All you're doing is, they didn't say this, but all you're doing is idolatry. <laughs> that if you can have faith, very, very deep faith in any lama, that's a wonderful thing. But then for that to be authentic Guru Yoga, in this Vajrayana context, we can't avoid that now. This is Vajrayana context. We, can't, we shouldn't pretend as if it's not. It is. It's taking place within the context of Vajrayana, pinnacle of Vajrayana. Then you're not taking refuge in that person as something over there existing inherently and separate from yourself. There's an embodiment with you, which you see with as pure vision as you can, but the whole point of authentic Guru Yoga in the context of Adriana is that for all the other lamas, some, some like Atisha had 60 lamas. I don't know how many Tsongkhapa had. Many of the great lamas have multiple lamas, quite a few. But you may have, you may very well have one who is just your root lama. It's so clear to you, this is my root lama. But then you have all the, and maybe that is truly a, you know, one of the great lamas, renowned, widely revered, a great lama whose name is widely known, like Yawakamapa, and so forth. But then for all of the other ones, oh, this Rinpoche also received teachings, and this Kempo, and this Geshe, and this very nice monk, and that nun, and that lay teacher, and, and so forth. If you see them all as emanations of the one, and the one is indivisible from the Buddha. If you see them, your guru's mind is being indivisible from that of the Buddha, and you see all your other teachers right down to the one who looks pretty much like yourself, see them all as emanations, nothing other than emanations of your guru whose mind is indivisible from that of the Buddha. Now you see it, that it's homogenous, it's even, and your reverence actually is equal. For, the, you know, for your, or, your ordinary teacher, which is teaching every single day, you know, maybe for years. If you see them all of one nature, now you're getting it.
Now you're getting it. That now you're not grasping. You're not reifying. You're seeing, here it is. These are all like reflections of the, of the sun, reflections of the moon and the water. But they're all from the same source. Now, being a Westerner myself, I know for quite some time I resisted using the word Lama for Westerners. I have to, that's just a confession. It shows I'm a bit of a racist. I'm serious. Tibetan Lamas? You betcha. Mongolian Lamas? Sure. Bhutanese? Definitely. Ladakhi? Sure. German? German? American? Californian? Well, come on, give me a break here. You know, they're just, the Germans are too much like me. And the, and the Swiss, I've lived in Switzerland for years, they're much too like me. You know. Singaporeans, I'm not so sure. You kind of look Asian, but you don't really act Asian. You kind of act like me, you know, pretty much. Australians, oh, you're American South. No, really. So, an Australian llama? It's kind of like, like a kangaroo tomato. I mean, those, it's hard to put those two words together. Australian llama, or Californian llama, or Scottish llama. Maybe a South American llama, but then you spell that with two L's. <laughs> So it's harder, isn't it? It's harder. The more the Lama appears to be like ourselves, the more the teacher, whoever it is, the more it appears to be like ourselves, the more difficult. Isn't it true? How about if you've been practicing Dharma, studying Dharma, even begun teaching Dharma? I know some of you have been teaching Dharma. Why not? If you can share Dharma, do it authentically, help others, why not? So imagine you've been studying for a while, practicing for a while, doing your best, and on occasion you teach with as much pure motivation as you can, simply the wish to be of service. So you become Dharma teacher. Right? And then you look into the mirror. Can you see a Lama? Who looks an awful lot like you. Can you look into your own face and see a Lama? If you can't, then you've missed the whole point. This is Dzogchen, where we do not look outside ourselves for the Buddha. So the practice we just did, there's something we need to release if this practice is to be authentic, and that's to be practicing from the perspective of being a sentient being. Not a good sentient being, or a bad sentient being, or a Rinpoche or a Tuku, or not a Rinpoche or a Tuku, from being a sentient being at all. If you're practicing from the perspective of being a sentient being, you're not practicing Dzogchen. Because if you're practicing from the perspective of sentient being, there's something to achieve that you haven't achieved yet. Right? And something to fear that you may get stuck and be a sentient being for a long time. And so in stage regeneration practice, you dissolve with some, some degree of understanding of emptiness. You dissolve into emptiness the sense of your ordinary body, 
ordinary speech, ordinary mind, and your ordinary identity, the one who has the body, speech, and mind. And you dissolve them into this primordially non-dual Dharmakaya and Dharmadhatu, the absolute space of phenomena, indivisible from primordial consciousness, you dissolve it, you dissolve it into that vastness of primordial consciousness and space. Then out of that, by the power of imagination, then you imagine arising with a Buddha body, Buddha speech, Buddha mind, and you are a Buddha, and you adopt divine pride, and you adopt by the power of imagination, by the power of faith, imagination, visualization. You assume, you put on the clothing in your mind's eye of Buddha body, speech, and mind, Buddha identity. And you continue practicing from that perspective. But it, from the Dzogchen perspective, that's called jirma, contrived, fabricated. It's a really good fabrication. There's nothing phony about it. There's nothing ridiculous about it. You're not going to find me being sarcastic about that. Uh-uh. If it's done authentically, you really have some understanding of emptiness, you dissolve and you come out with that divine pride. My hands are pressed in reverence. That's the authentic practice. Right? It's contrived. But you're contriving something enormously meaningful that is reflecting or is symbolizing a deeper reality you haven't, you haven't yet realized. So that's skillful means to use your power of imagination and so forth. And it takes a lot of effort. Not so easy to visualize. Even one deity, let alone deity with a mandala, let alone if there are 13 deities in the mandala, let alone if there are 720. And that's the body, speech, and mind of Kala Chakra. Oh, that's not so easy. Right? Big th- three mandala. Three mandala mandala. So that's effortful. And it's jama. It's something that you're modifying, something you're creating, fabricating as skillful means to bring about a profound insight and transformation and liberation. And it's you can see there's, it involves doing. Do something now. Recite these mantras, do this visualization, do these mudras, do these symbols, do this, maybe this chanting, this liturgy, and wear your bell, wear your vajra, where's your, where your, where's your drum, where's your, where's your damaru, and so forth. There's a lot to be done, right? And that can be all skillful means, and it's proven to be skillful means for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the Dzogchen approach is tsurumet, effortless, chamet, not doing anything, and jumemeba, jumemeba, unmodified. And so in rather than doing something, it is this complete release of doing anything, but you've got to release it all the way down to the core, that is, release even your sense of being a sentient being and doing anything as a sentient being, even conventionally. It's not enough to realize the emptiness of your own identity as a sentient being. It's not enough. And then still operating as such? That's not enough. If you're operating out of the perspective that, well, I'm not inherently a sentient being, otherwise I'd never be a Buddha. If I'm inherently a sentient being, I'm stuck forever. Right? If this is an inherently a whatever model of cell phone that is, if it's inherently that, it'll be that forever. That's the implication of something being inherently existent. It'll never change. Because it's got this iron grip on all of its qualities. Intrinsically, it's holding onto with like eternal talons its own characteristics, which means it'll never change. 
That's the implication. It's really powerful if you understand it. It'll never change, but also it will never interact with anything. It can never be modified with anything. And if the other thing is also inherently existent, it'll never be modified by this one. Nothing will ever modify anything. Everything will be frozen forever, absolutely, as it is, with no interaction whatsoever. That's, that is the implication. If things, anything, existed inherently, you, Buddhas, space, time, matter, energy, consciousness, or anything else, if anything exists inherently, it would be immutable and devoid of context, devoid of interrelationship. So the very fact that I can make these comments and Gache's head is, is nodding slightly indicates she's not inherently existent and nor am I. Otherwise that couldn't happen. Because I just modified you. And you're modifying me by your facial expression and so forth. So one may realize that one is not inherently a sentient being. Just like one may realize this is not inherently a not an inherently existent cell phone. But then even after you realize, you say, but it's still a cell phone. And I'm still this 64-year-old guy from California who's not enlightened, who's not a vidadada. I'm not going to delude myself. I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. That wouldn't serve me or anybody else. I'm not going to pretend. Conventionally, relatively speaking, I know who I am. I can see. I can see. I can see my mind. Nothing terribly mysterious about it. I can see my body. see my speech. See, mental afflictions come up, sometimes modify speech with mental afflictions. Buddhists don't do that. Buddhist speech is not modified ever by mental afflictions. Mine is. Newsflash. <laughs> you know? But if I take that, even this conventional sense of identity, I know who I am. I'm not a Vidyadhara. I'm not a Buddha. I'm kind of smart guy. I've got a really good education. I've had fantastic lamas. And I'm going to practice Dzogchen. No, you're not. You can practice Sutrayana if you like. You can practice Bodhichapatara. You can practice Sutrayana as a sentient being. Knock yourself out. It'll be about three, three countless eons. But you can. And it's reasonable. It's suitable. I mean, you're not a sentient being. You acknowledge that. And so that's called the causal vehicle. I've got the causes here. I've received all these teachings. I've got a mind that works, a body that's not completely pooped out yet. And therefore, I got the causes. Okay, where's the result? Oh, there it is. Three to seven countless eons away. The Dalai Lama said it could be seven. Okay, I've got a really big Hubble telescope looking into the future. There it is. I can just barely see him. Ah, there's Buddha Allen. I just saw him. 6.5 countless eons away. Gotcha. I'll see you. And a huff and a puff and a Huff and puff and huff and puff and huff. <laughs> the little, the, what, the little engine that could, isn't that it? The little, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> for six and a half kalpas. No, no, six and a half countless eons. Okay, could do it. At least you're going in the right direction. That counts for something. <laughs> or, You can simply ask, is that the only option? Yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. There it is. I'm not going to debate it. Don't need to defend it. It's true. That's it. That's why I'm conventionally. Yes, got it. It's true. Is it the only truth? That's the other one. Is it the only truth now? Is it the only truth now, right now? 
And then Zokishen comes along and says, well, no. Your coarse mind? That's not enlightened. Your substrate consciousness? That's the basement of all of your samsara. But it's still samsara. But there's something else that is present right now, and that was never in samsara, never wandered, never got afflicted, never got obscured. It is rikpa, which means knowing, which means it never became unknowing. It never became marikpa, avidya. Rikpa can't become avidya, then it's not rikpa anymore. Rikpa is always rikpa. Rikpa is always knowing. In other words, there's a dimension here of this individual here, and what I could be pointing to could be any sentient being in the universe. There's a dimension of being, of existence of this being right here that has never been unenlightened, never wandered in samsara, always present, always active, always cognizant, and it's not somebody else. It's not somebody else. You know, like being possessed by some really benevolent Buddha demon or something like that. It's not possessed by somebody else. It's right there. So it's, a matter of not, it's not a matter of doing then. It's a matter of radically not doing anything from the perspective of being a sentient being. Because from that perspective, there's an awful lot to be done. Right? Achieve this, achieve that. Abandon this, achieve that. Abandon this, achieve that. Abandon that, achieve that. There's so much to be done. Right? But from that perspective, there's nothing to be accomplished. There's nothing to be attained. And nothing to be abandoned. It is already a great perfection. And from that perspective, the whole of reality is a great perfection. And therefore, from that perspective, in terms of your own well-being, there's nothing to be done. Right? Nothing to be abandoned, nothing to be cultivated or adopted or to achieve. From that perspective, there's nothing to abandon. But there's nothing worth achieving that you haven't already got, but you never got it. It's already there. It's primordial. And it's the same at the beginning, middle, and end. It's the ground pristine awareness, the path pristine awareness, the fruitional pristine awareness, and they're all the same. They're not improved models. They're the same. And they're all simultaneously existent from the perspective of Rikpa. So when we're doing this practice then, it's releasing every vestige of the sense of being a sentient being and releasing it all, and resting in a perspective from which there's nothing to be achieved and nothing to be abandoned, and resting there in total inactivity, and then allowing that, that reality to rise up and meet you. That's a little introduction. Papa's mother will really linger here for a while. We're not in any rush. And we will, starting tomorrow, have more time for question and answer, because I know some of you are missing that. But um, that's how we did it for the first two weeks. We have a bit more time here, and we have some questions. So the first one was, um, I mentioned that Ah, the what do you mean? Uh, that, that's uh, that long citation from Kamachamya uh, Rinpoche, Peace, Space, the Path of Freedom, where Padmasambhava said, what do you mean you can't? What do you mean? What do you mean? Um, <coughs> I wrote to Sangye today, 
and she has now sent you the totally up-to-date notes of everything that I've done. It should be now in everybody's email. And also, people listening by podcast, uh, if she hasn't done it now, she'll do it very, very soon. It'll be up on the web as well. Everything, including um, the who. <laughs> so people who are listening by podcast, you know exactly. It was, a, it was really the best version. I don't know if you have a chance to listen to it carefully. Oh, it's, it's good stuff. Huh? From our generation, wasn't that good stuff? So there it is. And there's something else coming tomorrow. So anybody who likes music, come five minutes early. <laughs> coming attractions. And the link is there for people on the, on the listening by podcast. The link is there. You can listen to yourself. And you get to watch it. People here, yeah, yeah, you, didn't. you don't get to watch it. You just get to listen. People at home, you can see, you know, it's videos, YouTube. So there it is. So it's, it's now on your email. And the other one is that, uh, is, there, is there a way we can have the translation of the Compendium of Practices, or at least Chapter 13, complete? Uh, yeah, but not now. I haven't translated the whole text. Um, I'm just busy doing other translations and hanging out and doing nothing. So then when I'm spending so much time doing nothing that I don't have so much time to do stuff. Because I really like doing nothing. Uh, but the whole 13th chapter is translated. But I'm not going to tell you where it is right now. Close application of mindfulness to the body, feelings, and then to phenomena. I'll give you the link after this retreat's over. Right now, stay on track. That passage that I just read through, absolutely relevant, right on track to those few pages of Vipassana that Padmasambhava taught. Same track. So in the shamatha without a sign, as I said, that's common. That's common in the Pali Canon. It's common, 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 common. Shravakayana, everywhere, common. When we went to that mode of Vipassana, that mode, that you don't find, at least I've not found it. I don't think it's there in the Pali Canon. It's not there, I don't think, in the Theravada either. But it certainly is there in the Mahayana. Right? You see it in Shikshu Samachaya, you see it in Bodhicharvatara, whole section there on close application of mindfulness to the mind. It's there in the Bodhisattva and so on. But now as we've crossed the threshold into this identifying awareness, well, now this is Dzogchen. So that's not there in the Mahayana, in the Sutrayana. It's not there. Not, that, not, not this. That's not there. All right. So in, then, in, in this one transitional phase of living, we have Shravagayana, Bodhisattvayana, and Vajrayana, and Dzogchen all in one. So that's nice. Hola, so, so there's first question. So that'll come, the rest of it, at the end of the retreat. Give you the link. It's already there. And so here's now practical questions, and we do have a bit of time. I still have problems with the oscillation and awareness of awareness, especially with the uh, intensification. When I intensify all my sense perceptions, like visual or tingling in the body, become more intense, more clear, does that mean that I don't have the right target, or is this a result of my awareness becoming more clear and therefore illuminating all objects and awareness more clear, more sharp. There is a greater wakefulness as a result of the intensification too, so I guess that I am not just intensifying perceptions alone. Good, very good question. Um, Yeah. In this intensification, which really is a matter of unveiling, or not letting the, the luminosity of your awareness be diluted, 
into myriad thoughts and so forth and so on, but really just, I don't want to do my hands like contraction because that's really the wrong thing, but this intensification, this really focusing upon the, just the sheer awareness of being aware. When you're unveiling more and more the natural luminosity of your own awareness, then that luminosity is not confined to awareness itself. It does flow out in all directions. I remember very vividly, several years back, there was one couple that, uh, that I'd been training, and they went off for about 18 months, two of them, into very, very good retreat. They really practiced. Both of them did very well. Uh, one in particular was up at stage seven out of nine stages. Did very well. And she was just saying that, um, that her experience in between sessions, because she was practicing awareness of awareness, in between sessions, her experience of the entire environment was just luminous. Everything was brighter. Everything was brighter. Blissful, too. But everything was brighter. Right. Well, why? Because the awareness that illuminates all appearances of any kind during the dream state or the waking state is nothing other than your substrate consciousness. And that was just getting more and more unveiled. So it's illuminating everything more intensively. Right? Now, if you have sufficient sense of relaxation and stability to maintain that, then it's just glorious. And if you don't, you're going to be hyper-strung, tight, feeling kind of getting fried, you know, just so wired because you just can't stand that intensity without the underlying sense of, of calm and of looseness of relaxation, right? Well, she, she was doing fine. She did just fine. So that's the answer. Yes, that, intent, that heightening of the senses that comes with the territory. Now, the temptation would be, because uh, it is kind of frankly, you know, speaking as a person, you know, 60 generation, it is a kind of a high. It is. And so the attraction would be like to get really into the high, like, whoa, pass some cupcakes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Where are the brownies? Because <laughs> you know? that was some brownie. That was really, man, this was a brownie. You know? And so kind of really kind of get quite drawn to the, the sheer vividness, the intensity, the like, whoa, of all the appearances. Uh, but then that's grasping. And so the awareness of awareness, just let it stay there without being drawn out. So it's not a contraction. It's just an utter resting. The awareness remains still. When I practice a lot of mindfulness of breath in the body, I feel very relaxed, but sometimes I feel like my mind isn't as sharp. Is there any correlation, or am I just getting old? <laughs> the answer is, you are just getting old. But that's true of Martin also. Martin, I'm sorry, but you're just getting old, <laughs> you know. And Amir, he's already a graduate student. He's getting old, you know. Let alone, oh, that one over there. Old. <laughs> over the hill. You know, Morgan, like me, over the hill, over the dale. Da -dee, da -dee, da -dee. But we're not finished practicing yet. Right? Yeah, but getting old, of course. Of course we're getting old. But does that mean that the mind has to get less sharp? Nope. In fact, even if your mind gets sharp, don't be disheartened. Let your awareness remain clear. Geisha Zuppa's mind right now, I think, is not sharp. You know why? Because he doesn't have one. He lost it in the dying process. That's what happens in the dying process. Didn't lose his sharpness. Right? Because the sharpness not in the mind. Whatever sharpness people have in the mind, 
doesn't come from the mind. It comes from awareness. Right? So that's a wonderful thing. If you've really been familiarizing yourself with resting in that natural luminosity of your own awareness, even if the mind gets dull, you don't need to get be dull. Unless you're enmeshed with the mind, then you're dull. If you're nesting in the mind, then you're dull. You are dull. Your mind, you are dull. Because you've enshrouded yourself in the mind, and the mind is dull. Tough luck. Right? That was one of Gatrinabash's favorite. Tough luck. He said it a lot. Tough luck. But if you're not identifying with the mind, if you're resting in the nature of awareness, then your awareness illuminates a dull mind. But your awareness is clear. And it can remain clear through the dying process. When you're not, your mind not only gets dull, you lose it. You can go to the substrate consciousness. It's naturally clear. And if you maintain the clarity, you're dying lucidly. You're clear there. And then you naturally break through to the clear light of death. And since you win in clear, you stay, you stay clear. So, but this is a very good point. It's a very good question. It's well articulated, too. And so I sometimes feel my mind isn't as sharp. That's very good. So that's why I really have been teaching for some years now and very much enjoy in my own practice, as well as guiding others, balance, for example, of earth and sky. So the earth gets you that grounded, that sense of ease, of relaxation, of calm, of quieting down, right? But if that's all you're doing, then you can kind of slip, slip, slip into oh, hazy, mushy, I feel comfortable, don't bug me. That's stupor. Right? And so to balance it, whether with settling the mind in its natural state, whether with awareness of awareness, whether merging mind with space, all of these, settling the mind, awareness of awareness, merging mind with space, these bring in the spaciousness and the, and the, the clarity. Just the opposite of that groundedness, that releasing groundedness of the mindfulness of breathing. So doing those alternately would be very, very good. And likewise, sitting upright, if, unless there's some problem with the body, and if there's a problem with the body, don't bother to sit up. Lie down. Be happy. Be happy and you're still alive, and you can practice. Because that's all that matters, really. But if you have the ability to sit comfortably, then good. Sit up for your Vipassana. Sit up for your settling, settling the mind or awareness of awareness. Sit up if you're really comfortable. Very, very relaxed. But then when you go to mindfulness of breathing, you're alternating, you might want to just go fall back. Your fall back position and go into total meltdown. Just keep on, as you're looking for experiencing greater and greater sense of stillness and clarity, likewise, be going for deeper and deeper sense of relaxation. Now, having said that, if you can be comfortable at all times in sitting, then practice mindfulness of breathing and sitting. That's why they keep on speaking about the seven-point posture. It's best, but not if you're uncomfortable. So balancing the two back and forth, that would be the way to get rid of it. And also to, to come out of that kind of sluggishness, the heaviness. But also, as I've told a number of you individually, especially on a day like this, um, podcasters were looking out, the sun is bright, there are these puffy, lovely tropical clouds, the sky is blue. You know, it's really refreshing out there. We'll be, we'll be getting out there soon. And even though it's quite warm and humid and so forth, still, the air is very clear. We have no contamination here, you know, there's no smog, anything like that. So the air quality is good, just a bit damp. <laughs> a little bit, anyway. Like, if you extend your arm, you'll find sweat has just accumulated in your armpit, you know. Uh. <laughs> okay. So walking and letting your awareness come out into space, walking spaciously, mindfully, 
grounded where your feet are touching the ground, but your awareness spacious. That, that'll knock that out, so that's good. When I'm meditating, why does it feel like sound passes through my body? Uh, because it does. <laughs> what, do you think your, your body is a soundproof door? <laughs> we can experiment if you like. Somebody who's got a lot of meat, uh, she's got a lot of meat on her bones. So, get somebody with a lot of meat on her bones right there in the middle of the room. One person's down on one side, the other person's down. Hello. <laughs> See if the sound tra- travels through Elizabeth. Hello. <laughs> I bet the other person can hear. Because <laughs> even if it's rather, you know, chunky body that's meant to last. You know, like a Land Rover. I'm going to be here for 20 years, 30 years. I've got all four years. I've got, you know, she's gritty. She's tough. She's got four-wheel drive. She goes up steep, steep, steep hills. She goes, puts it in four-wheel drive. Keep on going. Grunting, grunting, grunting. But still, she's going. You know, that's good. We don't want to be as old as pipsqueaks like little gache here. Or, oh, that one back there. So skinny. Nobody questions whether Jeannie, you can talk to a Jeannie. Talking to a Jeannie like, talking to a, like a little puff of cotton. A bumblebee could talk through Jeannie. You know, very light. Very light, that's good. That's good too. You know. So that's what it. So the body, yeah, sound passes through the body. No problem. No problem. Not a big deal. So what shamatha method will lead one to the substrate consciousness the fastest? The one that works best. <laughs> I'm not being sarcastic. This is why the Buddha himself taught so many methods, because one method is best for one person, another for another. So like this nice adage goes, if you come to a locked door and you've got three keys, a golden key, a silver key, and a brass key, which one shall you use? The one that opens the door. Right? You don't worry about, oh, but that's a Hinayana technique. I don't want to be just like those Burmese monks. I'm from Tibet. I do Vajrayana. Those Burmese monks, they're, they're Theravada. They're selfish. You should have laughed at that point. That's silly. That's silly. They're not any more selfish than I am. I'm pretty selfish. So, but some are much, much more advanced than I. I remember Geshe Rappan told us this so clearly. So years, I remember it vividly. He said, because he was speaking to us. And he said, if you at any time feel you're superior to Shravagayana practitioners, the true adepts in the Theravada tradition, you're full of crap. Something like that. He was blunt. You think I'm blunt? He was blunt. He was really blunt. If you look upon people in other traditions like Theravada or Zen or Chinese Buddhism or anything like that, or look upon some Christian monks, said, oh, I'm Buddhist, I'm Vajrayana, you're full of crap. How do you know? What makes you think you're superior to anybody? And that was a rhetorical question. So, whatever works. So these sublime practices that you find in the Pali Canon, for some people they'll be the best way, the fastest way. And if they should try another practice from the Mahayana tradition of Vajrayana, they will not be as fast. And that's just true. Otherwise the Buddha would have only taught the fast ones. Who comes to the Buddha and said, Buddha, I'm really not that interested in enlightenment, so please teach me a really slow way because i got time to kill here. And I don't want to be too fast here. I want to kind of go lethargically, you know. And nobody's ever said that. 
Nobody says, give me the slow way, the arduous way. You know? Everybody wants Theravada, Zen, Chinese Buddhists, Vajrayana, Dzogchenpas, Mahamudras, and so forth. Everybody wants a fast way. And so if there was one fast way, the Buddha, of course, fully taught the fast way. And then there'd be only one way. Everybody does the same technique. We all march up and do the same thing. Of course, that's not true. So it's a very practical issue. But then, which one is the fastest for you? And of course, you can consult with a teacher. You can ask me if you like. But I'm probably just going to ask you right back. You know, have you tried the different practices, the different modes of mindfulness of breathing? Did any of them work better than another? Settling the mind, how did that work for you? Some people, it works the best. So I've encouraged some people, as you're practicing shamatha here in this retreat, don't do shamatha without a sign. No, that other practice works so well for you. Don't mess with this. Don't worry about it. They're both taught by Padmasambhava, right? So he didn't teach one for good people and one for bad people. It's like, what's most effective? For some people, it's going to be awareness of awareness. Some people, it's going to be merging mind with space. For other people, it will be visualizing the Buddha in front of them. So, but happily, the shamatha is so transparent. It's so transparent. And that if we don't have to wonder, we don't need to be uncertain. Oh, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Then did you wonder? If you find as a, as a result of the practice, over time, as the days, the weeks go by, that overall in body and mind, you're feeling more at ease, more relaxed, more loose. You've heard this how many times now? And the mind is more composed, it's more calm, has greater balance, greater continuity. You can focus at will. The mind has increasing, slowly, slowly, it has increasing clarity, luminosity, brightness. And overall, emotionally, you're feeling also more balanced, more at ease, having more poise. It's working. It's real simple. There's nothing mysterious about it at all. But if you're doing some very, very esoteric practice, and that's not happening, then practice isn't working, not for shamatha. So, that's it. So, we just crossed the threshold into Padmasambhava's teachings on how to see our own face, I mentioned, can you look into the face and can, see, can, you, can you look into a mirror and see somebody who's a Buddha? If you can, good, then you're a Dzogchen practitioner, you know, whether you're a Dharma teacher or not. Not all the, not all the Nirmanakais teach. Not all Nirmanakais are turning the wheel of Dharma, right? They do all kinds of things. And so you don't have to be a teacher to look in the mirror and be able to see a Buddha. But if you look into the mirror and you're re- reifying yourself, and you see a Buddha, <laughs> whoops, then <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning. And come early if you like music.